Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted to be joined today by Felicity Menzies. Felicity is the Principal Consultant and CEO of Culture Plus Consulting, a Sydney-based global diversity and inclusion consultancy founded in 2012 with expertise encompassing inclusive leadership, unconscious bias, cultural intelligence and inclusion, gender equity, respect at work, and empowering professional women. So Felicity, before we start, thanks for joining the show. I just want to check your mobile phone is turned off. Oh, good idea. I was at the Opera House uh, a couple of weeks ago watching the ballet and I thought my phone was off, but must have pressed a button as I pushed on my handbag and before I knew it, front row of the ballet and a podcast started playing and I think I really embarrassed my husband as I couldn't actually turn it off. But yeah, it's off, Dougie. That's good. That's part of the part of the job of, of being a husband, I guess. So let's um let's start with um respect at work, I think is something that I, I sort of pull out from from the work you're doing today. W- where did that originate from? Oh, see so that's interesting because yeah, I've not always worked in this space. I've been working in this line now for about 10 years. But prior to that, I'm chartered accountant, I'm a banker. So it is unusual for people to uh, learn that I started off my career in a very different place. But the, the, the pivotal moment for me was in my early 30s and I was still in banking and I experienced uh, quite a disturbing workplace incident. I was bullied. I was in an offshore market at the time. And uh, to cut a, a long story short, it did lead to the end of my banking career, as often was the case back then with workplace misconduct, is if you were a more junior member of staff and there was a power imbalance, uh, you were sort of sent on your merry way. And that um, led to a period of, of uh um, sort of being out of work and um, and went back to university, studied psychology, um, became very interested in building more respectful workplaces and launched a consultancy on the back of that. So that was a, a number of years ago. Do you, do you have a sense that workplace respect has changed over that time? Well, what we see in the surveys is that we still have um, significant number um, uh, prevalence of disrespect at work in terms of sexual harassment, bullying, discrimination, discriminatory harassment, sexual misconduct. But but I think what has changed is this recognition now of um, that uh, it's a tight labour market out there and we need to do the right thing by employees, um, which means uh, approaching workplace misconduct from the position of the employee and recognising that um, this zero tolerance approach so that it doesn't matter what your rank is or how much money and power you have in the organisation, you're held to the same standard of performance as everybody else. So that that imbalance is is starting to shift. Yeah, yes, encouragingly and interestingly with the with the new Labor government, we're expecting to see the adoption of all 55 recommendations of the Jenkins Respect at Work report, one of those being um, a positive duty on employers to prevent um, sexual harassment, which is a component obviously of respect at work. So it certainly is an increasing area. I'm doing a lot of work on on that space with um with my with my clients. Excellent. So let's go back to going back to university, not right back to the first time around. What what prompted that that choice of studying psychology and, and, and what did you learn from it? 
Yeah, I've always been interested in human behaviour, um, so therefore it's, it's it's a bit strange really that my first degree was commerce. I think growing up, I grew up in Adelaide, um, wasn't much else to study really in Adelaide um, and uh, uh, chose a finance career but have always, in fact, when I was in banking, I did um, in my out of banking hours, uh, after, after hours, I did do a couple of um, distance courses with Monash University in psychology and I really loved it. So when I had an opportunity for a career break on on the back of the bullying incident, I, I picked that up um, really out of curiosity, probably to better understand myself as much as everyone else. Um, yeah, and and realised through doing that that actually, you know, workplace behaviour um, it is is very complex, and um, uh, a lot of leaders are not uh, equipped to actually manage that complexity. Um, and I saw a business opportunity as well as you know, obviously being very personally interested in human behaviour. But how does that actually work in 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 workplaces? So, so I guess had you under had you had the understanding that you learned through this studying of psychology, you think it would have helped you deal better. Yes. the situation you were in and, and how would that have changed things? Yes, very much so. So when I uh, left the organisation where I was bullied, um, a couple of things had happened. I was in quite a senior role and this is this is separate to the, the bullying incident, but I was in a senior role in an offshore market leading a very diverse team um, and there was a lot of conflict um, in that office and um, the I think that I, as a leader, wasn't really equipped in how to handle that conflict, the cultural differences in the office as well, which was behind a lot of the mis- the disagreements. Um, so when going back to university, I learned some skills and some models to to manage to manage that that would have been incredibly helpful had I had that on board when i when I arrived in that role. But also as a woman, um, I think up until that point as a woman in banking, I had largely assumed that the challenges and the barriers that I'd faced were were partly were, were about me, were about my lack of capability or or me not fitting in um, and not being the right fit. Um, and that's certainly the case, but what I didn't realize at the time was that it was the, it was an organizational issue. It wasn't a problem with me. and that um, there was a, a narrative at the time that was changing, which was about this value of adding diversity and the value of bringing different voices to the table, and that workplaces had not traditionally been set up for that. Um, and had I had I known that that it wasn't about me um, and that it was about the system, perhaps um, I would have made some different decisions as I, as I went along. But it's it's hard to know in hindsight. So there's a, there's an interesting thing you, you touch on there. This idea of of cultural fit, because <clears throat> I think at the heart of some of the diversity issues is you try and find people who fit in. You're almost you're going away from the concept of adding yeah. people who are different. So maybe you could just sort of. Yeah. To, to the un, uninitiated, you could sort of explore that a bit further. So there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with cultural fit if you're hiring for fit against uh, organisational cultural values or you're hiring against uh, criteria for, for a job. Um, in fact, the studies show that hiring for fit can be really beneficial in terms of employee engagement, productivity and performance. What tends to happen, though, is that people confuse fit for, with the organisational values with fit for my own values and worldviews and, and uh, likes and dislikes and, and, and lifestyle. 
Um, and so we end up hiring, rather than hiring people that, that support the organisational culture, we hire people like ourselves. And that, um, uh, you know, although we all might get along and, and have a great time in the office, what that does limit is bringing in fresh thinking and new ideas and the ability to, to innovate and, and improve our decision making, overcome groupthink. So how do we solve that? Because if, if, if I think about a lot of organizations, you end up with, ve- although they can be very large, they can end up being quite small teams. So an individual may only have responsible responsibility for three, four, five people. And at that level, maybe it is challenging to, um, I guess, to spend so much time as a proportion of your day with these people, et cetera. How, how do you sort of recommend to companies that they, that they think about that? Yeah, we've moved from cultural fit to culture ad, which is really looking at your team and thinking what's missing from this team in terms of what what else do we need to bring to the table? It might be fresh thinking, it might be different skill sets, it might be an external industry perspective that we've not had before. And that does really help as long as we are sort of looking outside the the box that we've traditionally uh, or the pool that we've traditionally fished from. Um, it um, It is, uh, you, you, you end up up getting a much more diverse team. So then the question that sort of comes back is, well, does that end up with this sort of opposite problem of, what is the word, positive discrimination or something where people almost are ruled out because they're similar to the people Ooh, who are Dougie, oh, <laughs> getting, into the, getting into the difficult, um, the difficult. Let's cross the line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, um, I prefer the word tokenism where people might hire to meet a target. Um, you know, that's not nothing that we never want to see that because no one wins if that's the case. And the way that you can counter that, of course, is have strong business KPIs. So if you are a leader and you're recruiting for your team and you've got strong business KPIs and you've got a diversity target, why would you shoot yourself in the foot by just hiring to meet one target and not the other? You actually need to meet both targets, which means may mean you have to work harder to look for a qualified candidate who's different to the existing members of your team. But ultimately, you will find, as long as you've got a strong pipeline or pipelines there, and in some industries that is problematic, but you will, you can overcome that. Excellent. So that in itself is you sort of, again, an example of complexity. Why, why are organizations or workplaces so complex, probably more complex than families or, or other groups who interact? What is it? What's the nature of it that makes it so complicated. People. <laughs> <laughs> but we have people in our families, we have people in education. Oh, our families are complex though too, I think. Yeah. People um, and, you know, there's a limited piece of the pie as well. And so often you get a competition among different parts of the business. You get competition even within teams, it depends. So, you know, good leaders understand this and they foster a more collaborative than a competitive environment. But yes, you have people from all different backgrounds, ideas. Look, that 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 complexity um, creates challenges, but it's also tremendous opportunity if you know how to unleash it, which is what we do in diversity and inclusion. So diversity is 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 the noun. It's the collective. It's the difference. And inclusion is the way that you integrate that diversity to create extra value for the organization. Okay. So I like to think myself, my, my sort of motto, if you like, for, for inclusion in many ways is is not exclusion. I think that's a something that is easier to practice in a way than than the sort of deliberate act of inclusion. What do you, what do you sort of 
think well, about that? Um, yeah, I suppose from from through my professional lens, we tend to say if you're not actively including, you're probably excluding. So we do tend to flip it the other way and say, have a look around the room. Um, like th- we can all do this. Listeners can think about this now. If you think about the team dynamics, um, your team dynamics, and who are the louder voices and who are the quieter voices, and what assumptions do you make? about that? Um, do you do you assume that people are being quiet because they don't have anything to add? Because often that's not the case. Whether someone gets a space at the table is, is a lot to do with, um, it can be cultural differences, it can be personality, it can be their thinking styles, it can be the imbalance in the room. Um, and, you know, it's, it's about mindful inclusion is about recognising that perhaps there's not an equitable uh, contribution um, and then looking around and creating space to ensure that all those voices get heard and all those voices not only get heard but they also get valued that's good thank you can i think about how you got from studying psychology to to where you are today what were the i guess the what was the journey from from there to here so uh, when I left banking, I didn't, uh, and, and, I, and I enrolled in psychology, I, I didn't have a vision of where I wanted to end up. It was partly to fill in time and partly because it was I was interested in it. I was in a foreign market and I, I got bored quickly. Um, but as I worked through, um, as I worked through the degree, I realised that I did want to do something with the learnings, and they were very valuable learnings. I couldn't believe actually that I'd reached my early thirties and hadn't learned some of the basics of um, inter interracial relationships. I hadn't learned that race is a social construct, not a bi- biological construct, and I felt a bit ripped off by that. I <laughs> thought everyone needs to have this this knowledge. We'd be so the world would be a better place. Um, so I felt um, I felt quite a strong passion to share the knowledge that I'd learned, particularly in the business world where I think um, it's lacking. Um, and so I I went to a um, a seminar on cultural intelligence, and there were some consultants there. And I asked them, so how do you become a consultant? And they said, um, well, the best way to become a consultant is to write a book. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. I wrote a book. It took me like three years. um, But uh, what quickened up the pace was we went through some um, family uh, financial vulnerability and I realized I really needed to quickly turn this hobby into an income stream. So I've got a publisher on board and locked myself away in a hotel room for three months and finished the book. I've read your book, so. Uh, oh, yes, you have. <laughs> I need to get a signed. Thank you. Need to get a signed copy, um, and then that provided the springboard. It did. It was a fantastic way of um, creating a public profile. Um, I was very fortunate. A good friend of mine acted as a PR agent, and so I was. Um, the work was featured in a number of business publications. It's also one of the only independently authored texts on the Australian Institute of Company Director um, reading list. So it, it did get a really great profile at the time. Um, it was a, a more narrow about a more narrow field than what I do practice in now, but it was very topical at the time as well. We, it was about cultural intelligence, managing cultural diversity. And we know I was living in Asia, but also when I moved back to Australia, Australia is of course incredibly cultural, culturally diverse, one of the most multicultural cu- countries in the world. It opened, opened my eyes actually, again, having worked in different countries, I never really thought about this stuff properly either. So I was probably even later um, to arrive at that than you were. Um, 
getting your first client. Oh, yes. That was very exciting. If you've been a salaried employee all your life and then suddenly pays you on your own merit, it's just the it's the most amazing feeling. It really is. Um, and it was only $2,000. So I'd gone from a big banking salary. Um, and then I got paid. Someone wrote me a check in my company's name for $2,000. And I was just so thrilled. I don't think I could believe it. And then um, it, it wasn't long, though, that I started um, after that um, uh, winning, win, winning larger jobs, of course, um, and it somewhat enabled me to catch up with with the, with my banking <laughs> career. But it was, yeah, it was um, a great feeling to win that first client. And does that still remain the sort of most treasured emotional experience along the journey? Um, look, there's been so many. I think. I think every year I pinch myself and think from that $2,000, what it has become, uh, my business. I'm really blessed to have a global client base and, and, and clients which are really passionate about diversity and inclusion, really genuinely and sincerely passionate. And, um, you know, I do think I, my dream I always had a dream to uh, be self-sufficient. It's an important value of mine uh, to be financially secure. So to run my own business is probably one of my, besides my children, one of the things I'm most proud of. Excellent. So if we go back to that beginning and and, and having a dream, you dreamed of being self-sufficient, you went into banking. Could you ever have imagined you would have arrived where you are today, notwithstanding the sort of incidents that took place? No, not at all. Um, but but now that I'm here, I can see there was a there was a path, um, and I didn't know it at the time, which is often the case when you face into challenge or um, uh, you know something unexpected happens to you with a negative consequence. And it was quite traumatizing at the time to give up my banking career. It was a huge part of my identity, and I was really proud as a woman as well to be working in, in a front office role on a dealing floor. It was fun. It was exciting. Um, and but when I look back now and yeah, it's, it's, I suppose, surprising that I'm working in more of a, a people orientated space than a, than a, than a numbers game or a money game, but it very much aligns with the early values that I acquired in my youth, which was around social justice, as well as uh, I went, I was educated in all girls school with very strong, um, feminist, um, uh, ethos as well. So those come through quite strongly in my in my work. And it does feel like it was meant to be um, in some ways, many ways, actually. Can, can you sort of put your, your finger on that, that sense of, of social justice? Was there an event or was there was it your family? Where did that come from? Yeah, mo- mostly uh, m- my family, yes. So my, my father's very religious and we were raised um, going to church every Sunday and strong part of those religious values, which I think are common across all religions, is um, giving back to those less fortunate than yourselves. So, you know, there was my family were, were always giving to others, um, not that, and we didn't have much ourselves, really a comfortable life, but not uh, a lot to throw, um, throw around. So, that um, selflessness, I think, um, and doing things for others, uh, helping others um, uh, face their challenges in life, was was ingrained from my from my from my father and my mother, but also then reinforced through my education at uh, with with some Loretto nuns that really taught us that uh, we were uh, that the, the whole ethos behind the school was to raise 
women, uh, the educated women that could make positive change in their communities. And, um, you know, when I finished school, I thought that was by going into banking. Um, it took me a number of years and, and a few challenges to realise that it actually is in another way for me um, making that change. If, if we look at the two words, the sort of common words here, diversity and inclusion, we try and apply them back to your childhood. What sort of sense of diversity was there growing up in, you know, around Adelaide, I imagine? There, there was very little. Um, and um, I think that what was really formative for me, though, was when I was 10, I moved offshore with uh, my family. My father had a uh, transfer to Canada and there was uh, much more diversity in Canada. Um, and of course, we traveled through the United States and, and back then a lot more diversity in the States than I had seen in my Adelaide Hills childhood community. Um, and so... I can't say though that I really noticed the diversity because as a child, I think, you know, unless you've been told to categorize people, you just take people as people. Um, but what it did, the for, one of the formative things about that experience was me is that for the first time in my life, I was an outsider because I was Australian. I spoke with a different accent. I used different words. Everything was new to me. Um, the whole, you know, you think of, of Canada and Australia as being uh, quite similar, but very different in education. And then the same thing happened when I returned home. I was um, an outsider again in back in in my Adelaide school, um, Adelaide Hills preschool, a uh, primary school. Yep. And I remember when I came back home and uh, I was teased and I was rolled up in toilet paper on the tennis court <laughs> and for being an outsider. So that feeling of being different really um, uh, stayed with me. And that was different simply because you'd left and missed out on a year coming yeah. back rather than anything else. Yeah, not much at all. <laughs> spoke differently, spoke with a different accent, had different words, didn't use um, an eraser. Uh, I mean, I didn't use a rubber, I used an eraser and, you know, didn't have a, fr a fringe, I had bangs and, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's a funny old world, the, uh, the playground, isn't it? Um, hard work instilled in you from young age that you could work hard and achieve whatever you wanted? Yeah. So, um, my, I've always worked hard, but I think uh, that's come a lot from my father who role modeled hard work to me. He, his first, um, uh, profession was as a forester and I was born in Mount Gambia among the among the trees. But I think pretty soon in life he realized that if he wanted to provide me with a private education and and um, and and give my sister and I um, uh, you know some sense of financial security that he would need to retrain. So he went back to business school when we were very young, worked very, very hard and then had a very successful career in the public service. But I think that instilled a really good um, um dedication to work for me and I've I've never shied away from work probably sometimes to my detriment I work too hard and I don't know when to stop and so I've had to learn over time um, how damaging that can be yeah. I've been there myself um the interesting thing in, in this we always talk about standing out from the crowd and, and and being different and I think one of the things I've observed in, in, in you is, is, is a real determination to, to sort of get your message across there. And sometimes to get your message across, you have to scream and shout and bang <laughs> your feet and 
I was going to say, <laughs> do you have to be angry to get your message across? But how do you get heard in a, in a noisy world? I think I have evolved in that space. I think I was angry when I started in this space. And I think that anger did help to push through some of the fear about speaking publicly. But I don't think anger always gets you the results that you want. So I think I have realized that if I want to bring my detractors along with me, I need to take a a different approach, uh, um, meet them where they are rather than screaming at them. Is that is that working? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I hope so, yes. I mean, I, I feel like they scream at me more now um, and that's something that I, uh, you know, I have to uh, learn to ignore a bit. Diversity inclusion can be a triggering subject for some people and uh, it's hard to not get, um, I suppose, dismayed and feel a bit uh, under attack sometimes when people want to dispute the, the science or dispute your knowledge, even dispute your legitimacy to be talking about it. Um, but so I've had to learn to switch off from some of that noise as well and to focus on those people that that send the messages, that say I've made a difference, that are my my advocates rather than the detractors. What is the the main source of that or the main contention with your viewpoint? Because to me what you say fairer workplace, empowering women, culture, intelligence, et cetera. I mean, all these things are admirable. So where does the detraction Mm. come from? Ultimately, I think it comes from fear Um, and fear of, you know, we're getting quite deep here, Dougie, but I think ultimately it comes from fear of loss of power because if um, people have um, benefited from um, societal uh, systemic inequities. Um, it can be fearful when you think that well, you brought up, you raised the topic of, of um, targets before, at least we did, we discussed targets. You know, that can be quite threatening to people to suddenly realize that, um, you know, they're perhaps they, um, there's now, well, we're really high, we're, we're really, um, not lowering the bar, we really are increasing the talent, the pool of talent from which we're recruiting from, which means you're going to have to work harder. And I think, yeah, that that's scary for people. Um, it, it shouldn't necessarily be, um, but it is, and it creates all these sorts of um, feelings and people want to argue with it and find flaws in it, um, really out of their own personal need to protect their patch, I suppose. So it's the classic vested interest thing that we see in all sorts of change elements. Yeah, yeah. And there's also unconscious bias. Like a lot of people can't see it. They yeah. really do believe that the world is a meritocracy. They really do believe that um, Australia is a country that gives everyone a fair go. Um, and look, we certainly do have some incredible success stories of people which have overcome um, uh, difficulties in their life to achieve great success. But if we look at um, the the racism studies and the discrimination studies, w- there are uh, groups of um, our population and uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, obviously, of course, who are still heavily disadvantaged. Um, and, you know, we can't, the, the, the science is there to prove that. And yet some people will still want to dispute it despite that. So then you then you have um, an election in Australia, and I, I don't want to make this a political 
um, discussion. But the people of Australia clearly wanted some change. So perhaps the message that you have been trying to promote for some time is starting to get across. You know, I think there's some merit in that. I must admit, I felt like ringing up all the diversity inclusion peers that I have and having a quiet, silent jig because (laughs) um, we often feel like we're screaming into the vortex. You mentioned before, you know, yelling angry. Well, I think we've for many years have felt that progress has been slow, but in the corporate world now, and, you know, there has been this talk about the teal independence and the professional women, there has been this discussion which has been going on in Australia about diversity and inclusion for quite some time now and uh, individuals are are now um, um, more likely to understand understand it, to buy into it and to see it as fair. And I think it gets back to that, how do we want our country to be? We've always said we're a fair country. Um, We want Australia to be a fair country. Um, And so some of this rhetoric which is um, um, implying... um, or, or rejecting these notions of diversity and inclusion, um, yeah, I don't think it's sitting well with segments of, of um, particularly those that have been through um, sort of the corporate world and have, have learnt uh, new things like I did when I went back to university. So we're both um, parents of, of teenage girls. So if, if you look at the, the world you entered a generation ago and you look at the world that you're children and the workforce they will enter, um, how do you feel for their futures? On the one hand, I feel really encouraged because there's a greater recognition of the the value of women um, in the workforce and um, I think there's some great opportunities for them in fields that they would have been shut out from before, uh, for example, the STEM industries. But um, at the other t- uh, on the other hand, I'm still concerned and we see the Respect at Work report, we look at the level of uh, sexual harassment as well as, you know, and, and men are sexually harassed as well. Um, you know, the figures are, I think it's about the mid-20s of men experience sexual harassment, high 30s or mid, mid to high 30s of women. So it's not just a, a, a women-only thing, but when we look sort of even outside the workplace at gendered violence, um, the, the violence is predominantly at, at the hands of men. And so I do fear for their safety for, for that reason. So professionally, I think, yeah, they're much better off than, than, than when I embarked on my career. But I do fear for their, their safety, uh, both at work and also outside of work. And just sort of before we conclude, you know, the last couple of years has seen a very different world with the pandemic and so on, and a lot more talk about you know, workplace flexibility and, and, and what that might look like in the future. Is it is it too early to draw any conclusions or from your your professional work, are you starting to see things that you think will change forever? Yeah, definitely. So I'm doing, uh, when, when we went online um, in 2020 for the first lockdown, I moved all of my consulting and training work online. I was really fortunate to be able to do that and continue my business. And most of it has remained online. I am doing some work, uh, really, um, really important work that we're doing face to face. 
But I think we're seeing most of my clients are, are working much more flexibly. I don't think, it, I, I think this is a trend. We won't go back. In fact, there's some really interesting research start, um, released, I think it was by Accenture, which showed that um, employees which are forced back into the office or encouraged back to the office strongly feel less connected than employees that are working remotely. Now, I don't know what's behind that, but it's perhaps um, the opposite of what you would expect. So I think think these arguments which came out at the beginning, which was we have to get people back for relationships and for connections. I'm just not sure that we've we've really landed on the science behind that yet to prove that that's correct. In fact, the research is showing us otherwise. I think, um, you know, I've, I admire the work that you've done. I, I, as I say, I, I read your book some time ago. I think you're pushing through barriers and I, and I think you're doing a great job. So um, Felicity, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with the listeners. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.